All right. Well, if you've been with us lately, you know that we are studying the book of Romans. And I continue to pray that the Lord will deepen us as we come to grips with eternity and with the marvelous depths of the gospel. So if you would, join me in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, is a very difficult passage because of what it tells us about ourselves. What it says about us is uncomfortable, maybe even offensive to many. It's also difficult because of what it reveals about God. There's some things about God that defy our, our reasoning and our judgment. And so there are many who discount this passage. There are many who malign it. There are many who adjust it to fit what they want it to say. So if you would, let's read this this passage together. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for your mercy and your patience, and we are reminded by this text of how desperately we need to be saved. Enlighten the eyes of the blind. Convict of sin. Saved by your power. Amen. Remember Paul's theme in the book of Romans is the power of the gospel. 
He says in verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Which we saw means that God has acted to make us right with him and to bring us into a right relationship with himself. This is how we can be made right with God. God has now made it known. The gospel reveals how we can be made right, how God has made it possible, and how we are to respond. And now beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul is going to unpack the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25, is the first main section of the letter to the Romans in which Paul establishes that the heart of the gospel is justification by faith and faith alone. So first, he demonstrates that all of humanity is guilty of sin and culpable for its rebellion. Whether people are immoral or whether they are moral, they are together guilty of sin and accountable to God. This is chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Paul then goes on to show that the Jew is just as guilty. And he has to speak specifically of the Jews because the Jews actually have the law of God. They have a special revelation. Through the law, God has established a relationship with a particular people group. And it is out of those promises to that people group that the gospel actually comes. He's already said that earlier in chapter 1. But Paul goes on to show that just because the Jewish people have the law of God does not make them less guilty or less culpable. In fact, it makes them more so because they have the law. This is chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. Paul then goes on to show that both are rightfully condemned, that both rightfully come under God's wrath, and both can only be made right with God through faith and faith alone. So chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 then, introduce us to this bigger section, this bigger argument by answering the inevitable question that comes out of verses 16 and 17. Why? Why? Why do we need salvation? And salvation from what? Why do we need to believe the gospel's message? Answer. For because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is the beginning point of the gospel. The good news starts with bad news. Just like a doctor has to identify the illness or the disease before he can give a cure, the gospel and the salvation that it brings make no sense unless we first understand our true dilemma, our true condition. All of humanity is under the wrath of God. 
Now, God's wrath is not a popular truth. That's why I mentioned before I read the passage this morning that this is, this is a difficult group of verses. It's not a popular truth. The idea of a wrathful God is even a stumbling block for many Christians. It's part of the reason that the reality of hell, eternal damnation, and judgment is rejected by so many. And this is not new. It's not a phenomenon just of our day. Even in the early centuries of the church, a teacher named Marcion denied that the God of the New Testament could be wrathful. And therefore, he was a different God than the God of the Old Testament. And so he actually created two gods, and he chucked the Old Testament, and he chucked part of the New Testament, and he was rejected by the church as a heretic, as a false teacher. So this isn't new. People have always struggled with this. Now let me suggest a few reasons that people struggle with God's wrath, the truth of God's wrath even sometimes to the point of compromise or false teaching. Number one, we tend to project onto God the ugliness of human anger and how we've experienced its destructiveness, whether that's our own anger and seeing its effects in life and how we know what that does to our own spirits and hearts, or whether or not that's because we've suffered from other people's anger might be an abusive parent or husband, a jealous rival. We've experienced other people's anger. And so we tend to project on that when we hear that God is wrathful. We put him through the grid of our experience and our own humanness. But we need to remember that God's wrath is not an uncontrolled emotion. The Bible uses words like anger, fury, to describe God's wrath. Sometimes imagery is is called up. But God doesn't lose his cool. God doesn't just react. God's goodness, his wisdom, and his love are never overcome by his wrath. Now, the way I experience anger and the way you experience anger most of the time is that if I become angry, it it blots out any patience, mercy, love, kindness. Now, there is a right kind of anger. There is a, a righteous indignation There's a right kind of anger that we can have. But that's not the anger most of us experience most of the time. Most of us struggle, when we struggle with anger, we struggle with sinful anger. Rage, malice, outbursts of anger, as the New Testament calls it. And when we do that, it displaces the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Faithfulness. We, it displaces those things. We act in the flesh. We sin. That is not true of God. God is not us. 
He is always good, wise, loving, and wrathful at all times. God is all of those things, and they are never in conflict with each other. Also, remember that his wrath is always right. His wrath is always right. Even when we are rightfully angry, when we do have that right indignation, maybe an offense because of evil or sin, even then, it is always mixed with our frailties and our limitations And sometimes even that right kind of anger is mixed with sin. God is always perfect in his wrath, and he never violates his love or goodness to exercise his wrath. So, to be honest, for some, our God is too small. We want to box God in and treat him like he was one of us when he's not like us. But ultimately, people avoid, compromise, at times even flat out deny God's wrath because in our pride, we want to answer only to ourselves for what we decide is right and wrong. And so we elevate ourselves, watch, we elevate ourselves to sit in judgment on God and condemn his wrath as something unjust. This is the judgment that is hidden sometimes in the criticism, why would God do that? How could a loving God do this or that? How could a loving God allow that to happen? And if we say that God judges sin or God is wrathful, God is sovereign, and then we say God is loving also, people go, no, that's not possible. I know best about what God should be, can be, and has to be. That's pride. That is the very sin and the very condition that Paul is identifying in Romans chapter 1. We elevate ourselves to to sit in judgment on God and, and condemn his wrath as something unjust, unrighteous. We exercise our own standard of right and wrong to acquit ourselves and condemn God. Just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we want to be like God. And what this leads to then is Christians, even often Christian leaders, avoiding or denying God's wrath to make the gospel more acceptable more friendly to the unbeliever. And that then becomes defined as success because we're reaching people. But what are we reaching them with? It's not the truth. We redefine success in this way. And to be honest, for most Christians, this compromise is more subtle than just flat out denying God is wrathful. It looks more like simply emphasizing God's love to the exclusion of his wrath. Now, I believe with all of my heart that we must proclaim and woo with God's love. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. He's talking about eternal judgment there. Perish, but have everlasting life. There's a reason John 3.16 shows up on that sign in the end zone. Why it's scrawled on things. Why many of you use it as your security code, and you shouldn't. Because anyone who knows you're a Christian is going to know that you use John 3.16. Okay. But there's a reason for that, and we should proclaim the love of God. We want people to know that God loves them. The gospel does too, but we have to start here. That love is cheapened. That love doesn't mean much unless you understand how guilty and accountable, culpable we are before God. We cheapen God's love if we abandon the wrath of God. And we preach a powerless gospel. So despite any struggle we might have with this truth, God's wrath, and reconciling this truth with God's love, we must trust God. And we must embrace what God has actually said about himself and his wrath and our condition as the human race. The scriptures are filled with references to the wrath of God. Like I said, sometimes it uses different words. Sometimes it uses imagery. And we can't just ignore these. We can't just avoid them or try to shape God into someone who suits our comforts. What does it mean, the wrath of God, then? Perhaps the best way to understand what God's wrath is is to put it in the context of other truths about God especially God's holiness and God's justice. God's holiness is God's separation from sin, from that which is common or base, and especially that which is tainted by evil, sin. That would include us. God is holy. God's justice is God's intolerance of sin that requires judgment. So for God to be just, when sinners are brought before him as a holy God, he must deal with that sin with judgment. That is justice. God's wrath, then, is God's execution of judgment against sin. That's what wrath is. It is God's execution of judgment against sin. And sometimes God's wrath is immediate. Sometimes it follows immediately after some disobedience or sin. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Bible. Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 and 10 after the Israelites forged the the golden calf and and worshipped it at the foot of the mountain as Moses was even receiving the Ten Commandments, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you." 
The reason God says to Moses, let me alone, is that Moses is trying to intercede for them. He's saying, please don't. Please don't blot them out. God is saying almost that, stand aside, Moses. I'm going to start the whole thing over with you. I did it through Noah. I can do it through you. I made a promise to Abraham, and I can still fulfill every promise that I made to Abraham through you. Now, God relents because Moses continues to plead with him. But you can see here this wrath, my wrath may burn hot against them right now. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 20 is another example. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, both man and beast upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. So sometimes God's wrath is immediate. The Bible also speaks of God's wrath as as a final cataclysmic judgment. And it refers to this often as the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord's wrath. For example, Ezekiel chapter 7 verse 19, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. So there's a coming final judgment. Even Ezekiel is picturing this, presenting it. Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6, the Lord is at your right hand. And this is the Lord speaking to his Messiah. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. There you go. Wrath is God's execution of judgment against sin. But the Old Testament isn't the only place we see this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is saying that the prophets, the Old Testament, that point to this day of the Lord, this day of wrath, is something still in the future for us. It hasn't happened yet. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. says something similar in Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So when someone says God is not wrathful, that doesn't square up with a loving God. Those are empty words that are intended to deceive. Don't be deceived. God's wrath is coming. The Bible also presents God's wrath as a present reality under which the world lives. So sometimes it's immediate. It's it's God intervening into the, the circumstances of history, exercising wrath, judgment. It also speaks of a particular day of wrath, a day of judgment. But the Bible also presents God's wrath as a present reality, something that is, if you will, a a status under which the world lives. 
For example, John 3, 36, and remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. John 3, 17, for he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He continues this. John 3, 36 is at the end of that teaching. And here Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains on him. Meaning that you start under the wrath of God, and unless you believe in the Son and gain eternal life, the wrath of God still remains on you. We are underneath it. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what children of wrath means. It means someone destined for wrath, to undergo wrath. And this is how Paul means wrath here in Romans 1.18. When he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven or is being revealed from heaven. Heaven is, is the place where judgment is executed perfectly, unlike earth. Where justice is known perfectly, unlike on the earth. It is of divine origin, this wrath. It is being revealed from heaven. And so Paul is really something, is saying something more than just wrath as a condition under which the world lives. He is saying it, is be, it has become active. Back in verse 16, Paul said, The righteousness of God is being revealed. And we saw that this means that God's plan of salvation is being demonstrated, it is being worked out. In the course of history, it is being witnessed, it is being experienced. Paul means the same thing here about God's wrath. God's wrath is being revealed, it is being demonstrated, it is being worked out in the course of history. It is being witnessed and it is being experienced. And what Paul is getting at is this, Jesus' death, or his coming, his death, his resurrection have made salvation clear and accessible. And in the same way Jesus' coming, his death, his resurrection, have made God's wrath clear and imminent. Just as salvation has become clearer and more acceptable, so God's wrath has become clearer and closer. Both God's salvation and his wrath have begun to work themselves out in this present age which is passing away and moving toward that final day of wrath and salvation. But it is a wrath that is now being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When Paul says men here, of course, he doesn't mean man versus woman, male as opposed to female, he means mankind, humanity, the whole human race. 
And in all these verses that follow when Paul says they or them, he is talking about the entire human race. The entire human race. So even if not every person is as bad as a person can be, understand that Paul is speaking in universal terms, in absolute terms. This is what is ultimately true of the entire human race and every member of it. From the first sin in the Garden of Eden until the end of history. And keep in mind that this, much of Romans, and I've said this way back at the beginning several weeks ago, Romans is from behind the curtain. This is the divine perspective on the human race. At large. Every person comes under God's wrath because of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Paul says here that the essence of humanity's unrighteousness is that we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. This is at the core of our rebellion against God. It isn't that we don't have the truth. It is that we suppress it willfully. This suppression of the truth is what dominates the rest of these verses. Because verses 19 and 20 tell us the truth we actually suppress. And the key words there are, you can look at them, known, made plain, shown, perceived. Verses 21 through 31 then explain what we have done to suppress the truth. And the key words there are exchange, which Paul uses three times, if you noticed. And every time he talks about us exchanging, whether that's uh, the glory of God for images or the, uh, exchanging the truth for a lie, exchanging natural sexual relationships for unnatural ones, he follows every time with, and God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. That is our suppressing of the truth. We exchange. Verse 32 then shows how we perpetuate this rebellion against God's decree. So we are under God's wrath because we suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. So we're going to see then three ways that we suppress the truth. So that was all kind of introduction to the sermon. Okay. <laughs> But we're only going to look at one today. We'll get to the other two next week, okay? Three ways that we suppress the truth. Number one, we suppress the truth about God and are without excuse. We suppress the truth about God and are without excuse. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Humanity is not the victim of God hiding himself or making the truth inaccessible. God has made himself knowable to people, at least in a general way, which is what Paul goes on to clarify here. 
It is not that God is unknowable. It is that we suppress the knowledge of God. This ought to change how you think about the world and those who do not believe in Christ. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, the things that you would not be able to know about God, that can't be seen unless they are evidenced, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, creation reveals God, specifically his eternal power and his divine nature. These are broad truths about God. And I believe that Paul, behind Paul's thinking here is Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4 in which David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. You notice all of these words of communication, declare, proclaims, speech, Knowledge, speech, words, voice, voice, words. Nature is screaming, there is a God. There is a creator. He is powerful. He is glorious. And he is divine. And he is somebody other than you. But... Nature does not tell us about his love or his grace, his holiness, his wrath. It does not tell us how to live. This is why in Psalm 19, David goes on and moves from nature to what? The law. The law. It's the law that illuminates life. It's the law that gives the heart joy because it reveals something specific about God. Nature doesn't tell us how we can know this creator in a personal way. It doesn't tell us how we can honor him or worship him. So to put it frankly, nature is never sufficient to save us only to condemn us because it makes us culpable for seeking God. Nature's job and role then is to say there is a God, there is a creator, he's divine, he's glorious, he isn't you, and you should seek him. Not the creation itself, but where it has come from, from whom it has come. Maybe you've heard someone say something like, nature is my religion. And we, we live in a, in a place, a region in the world where that is very popular. Nature is my religion. Many years ago, between ministries, I was working in a place and I was talking with someone about the gospel and gospel things. And he said, the mountains are my cathedral. 
He loved to hike. The mountains are my cathedral. But the mountains can never lead you to a personal knowledge of their creator. The reason we love and are overwhelmed by the beauty of a sunset or the power of of the ocean or the majesty of the mountains is because they scream glory. They cry out, there is a God. Who is he? Seek him. But they can never lead us to a personal knowledge of him. They only make us culpable. And so Paul's conclusion is they are without excuse. So they are without excuse. The truth we suppress then is what God has revealed of himself. When we are confronted by the, the, the glories of nature, instead of going, I must know this God. Where has this God spoken of himself or described himself or my place in this world? We suppress it. In fact, his wrath is one of the truths we suppress. All of these examples of why we avoid God's wrath, we redefine it, we adjust Romans chapter 1, is the very proof that we suppress truth. Not that we don't have it, but we don't like it, and we suppress it. We suppress it. This is one of the reasons that, that strengthens my conviction that the Bible is true over and over and over again. It is how the Bible peels back the layers of human behavior and thinking. And when it does, it makes sense of the world. So if we are without excuse, then consider the remote villager who has never heard the gospel. Is he responsible for his sin? This is the classic dilemma Right When we say that if someone is, does not come to Christ, they die in their sins, they face eternal judgment. Well, what about the guy in the jungle who's never heard the gospel? Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, yes, he is culpable. She is culpable without excuse. They do know. They know enough to seek but we suppress the truth. What about the person who demands God provide proof, provide evidence that he exists, and when shown trees, blades of grass and their intricacy, the study of the human cell, or the, the vastness of galaxies upon galaxies, as proof and evidence that God exists, what do we do 
with that. What about that person when they're shown that and they insist that all of these things are the product of chance? That these things evolved. That they just came to be through a series of, of indeterminate accidents. Is she an objective seeker of truth? No. She or he is suppressing the truth. That's why as a Christian, when I look at nature, when I look at creation, I see God's handiwork everywhere. I see a God who who is intimately involved in the details, the intricacies of all of creation and all of the vastness of it, who reveals his power and his might and his wisdom and his care. And someone who does not know God, who does not believe him, sees in that only proof that God does not exist. Is the paleontologist studying fossils neutral when he evaluates his findings and publishes them? No. He is a truth suppressor. And he concludes what fits with his presuppositions. What about the person who has a hard life, who has suffered abuse and neglect, has known poverty and oppression? Or the wealthy and the filled? We are all without excuse. We are all without excuse. Listen, the gospel begins with hard news. It begins with bad news. And for those of us who have believed the gospel, we know these verses describe exactly who we once were. That's exactly who we were. And I'll tell you something else. It is important to know this when we at Crossway Fellowship pursue our core commitment of proclaiming Christ. Because listen, you can know this, that the unbeliever with whom you share the gospel, whether that's a friend or a coworker or a parent, that person already has a knowledge of God. It is not that they have no knowledge of God, they are suppressing it. They are not without the truth. They are suppressing it. So, whether that person is a postmodern, post-Christian, pre-Christian, Western secularist, or an Eastern mystic, it does not matter. Whatever the obstacles to the gospel may be, whatever cultural barriers, whatever traditions have been handed down from one generation to another for that people group, Whatever they may be, you are never starting from scratch. There is this, for all humanity, a knowledge of God. A knowledge of God. And as you go from here today, you should be greatly encouraged by that truth. And it should make you fearless in sharing the gospel. Both the love of God and the reality that we are under the wrath of God 
and that the human race will answer to God if we do not turn to him. Let's pray. Lord, we who have believed on you and your gospel, the salvation that you have revealed, Lord, we know that we once were blind and and lost. Lord, that it is through no credit of our own that we now find ourselves in your grace and in a personal relationship with you. But Lord, that for every one of us who would call ourselves a Christian, it began with a conviction, a recognition of our sin and our rebellion and our desperate need to be made right with you. And Lord, as we look at the world around us, world that is exactly what you describe in Romans chapter 1, we are tempted to, to fear, to recoil. Yet, Lord, you have called us to be bold in the gospel and to know that every human being has been shown, has seen the truth, your divine nature, your eternal power, and that they suppress the truth, and that the gospel call is a, is a wooing, it is, a, it is a, a begging that they would stop suppressing the truth and turn to you. Lord, we know that you are faithful, that your will will be accomplished. And we thank you as your people for the grace that you've shown us. And we praise you for that grace today.